Like to innovate, you have to study your problem. To study your problem, you have to talk to customers. I am astounded at the number of executives who don't want to talk to customers. Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor, Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. Innovation doesn't happen on your spare time, or does it? Well, that's part of the conversation with my next guest, James Benham. He's an entrepreneur, technologist, bootstrapper, CEO, and co-founder of JB Knowledge. He also has a new book out called Be Your Own VC, Venture Capitalist. And we dive into understanding how to do that a little bit better and how to grow a business so that you don't rely on outside sources for funding. Here's where we dive into some values. We touch on Jim Collins, great, great author. Values are the key. What are values? How you can start growing and connecting with people that help you get to where you want to get to. You're going to want to listen to this one. If you've got a company that you want to grow, that you want to build out and rely on outside funding less, jump into this one. It's a fun conversation. Let's talk to James Benham. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts at Success Magazine Podcast. I've got James Benham with me and he just wrote a book that I'm 40% through. I did some research on you. So let's start with something that stood out to me because yes, we're going to talk about funding and venture capitals, using your own money, growing your companies. But first, you're 21 years old. You decide to start your own company and your dad said, I'm not going to give you my business. Correct. And then you go to him for help financially that's really your first time pitching. Yeah, it ended up being a five thousand, a whopping five thousand dollar investment. I think we ended up at the end of all the loans. There were about three or four of them. It was like sixty three grand. Which, when you read the size of people's pre seed and seed rounds now, <laughs> being in the millions of dollars, it's almost almost laughable how much uh, how, or how little money we consume to start the business. But uh, I knew I needed a good partner. I knew I needed a good advice. I knew I needed a small credit line. You know the the difference was that there was there was more available if I needed it. We just never used it. We focused on capital efficiency from day one and cash generation from day one and always focused on building our long-term play while we also built a short-term cash generating business. And so that's that was the the essence of the entire book and the whole story for the last 22 years has been the the same mantra is is have a have a business that generates cash so we can build businesses that generate equity value. Been a lot of fun, super rewarding and yeah, dad dad would never let me work for him. So when I was uh, you know, 12, I wanted to go work at his plastics company, he wouldn't hire me, so I had to go start a lawn mowing business. He gave me a loan to to buy the first lawn mower and ended up making really good money on that and then when I was 16, I went and took a job at a restaurant, bussing tables on the weekends and then I cut grass during the week and then Ended up being a consultant, teaching people how to get on the internet back in the early mid '90s when it was hard to get on the internet. And so I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad he never employed me. Like it was the, it was probably the best thing he could have done for me. He forced me to go and build a lawn business and an internet consulting business and take a job at a restaurant and learn about customer service. And none of that would have happened if he had hired me. So I, I'm, I'm appreciative of it. That's a beautiful thing, by the way, because having that connection to to your dad, where you were saying he was in essence advising you like twice a day too. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. He and I just got off the phone 30 minutes ago. I mean, we still, he's 85 and we still talk. He's, he's a lifelong mentor, right? I mean, he, he, uh, he loves being a dad. I love being a son, even being partnered and he was never active in the business. He was a advisor and, and credit line, right. For the company and investor. He was a lot of things. He's a fraternity brother as well. I mean, we, we have, a, we have a lot in common, but, uh, he, you know, he, he always stayed out of the operations. He knew I would hate his guts if he, if he actually worked in the business. He also knew I'd hate his guts if I took over his business because I'd never feel like it was mine. And, um, you know, he, he knows me pretty, pretty damn well. So it's been a really neat, you know, evolution of our relationship. And now we generally just talk about flying because we're both pilots and we generally just talk about flying airplanes. I like that. Well, let's talk about mentors, man. Yeah. Because that, that's where I wanted to go with this. As far as reaching out or finding the right people to guide you through this growth. Where did you go to after you initially reached out to your dad and and then you're like, okay, now I want to grow to the next level. Where were those next mentors coming from? They, for me, they came from my client base first. I mean, I, I ended up making really good friends with some of my customers who ended up really taking on a mentor role. Whether it was officially or unofficially, I had one guy I think I'd talk about in the book, Mike Hovel, just amazing. Every time we would talk, we'd talk about what the software I was building for his company, but we only talked about that after he spent half an hour asking me about my business and advising me. <laughs> it was it was it was so awesome. I mean, he's such a great guy. I I still I still occasionally talk to Mike. You know, we we don't work together anymore because uh, I don't work in his industry anymore. But we stayed friends. I was in the Corps of Cadets at Texas A and M, which is an ROTC military college inside of a major university. So my first eight clients all came from the core, ex-cadets, people who'd been in the core who were alumni of AM, who were just taking a chance on me. And a few of those, Don Crawford, Mike Hovel, ended up being mentors to me for the rest of my life. Still are. I still talk to them, you know, and not not as much anymore because you know you, you have you have early stage mentors that help you learn the basics. And then you have later stage mentors like now I'm in YPO. Once you get to a certain size company, you're eligible to be an EO, which is a, you know, generally like a million dollars a year in revenue or higher. So I, I was I qualified for EO a long time ago. So I joined EO like seven or eight years ago when, when I found out about it. In entrepreneurs organization, you know, YPO is the granddaddy um, CEO organization out there that's been around for uh, over a hundred years. But you got to be a pretty good sized company to be in there. So I joined EO and was mentored by a bunch of my peers in my forums, and then. Once I got to a good size, I moved up to YPO and have, you know, joined some more formal mentoring relationship programs they have there. They have these things called micro forums and they have they have a formal structure for getting mentored by your peers and by others. And you know, you're always trying to get mentored by someone who's been at your level and is at the next level because they, they there's different, there's you know, different challenges to scaling. And you know, you also have different industries. Like one of my one of my really, really great mentors as well a customer, Skip Brechtel, I mean, just an amazing guy. And he mentors a bunch of people because I, I know, I know quite a few folks who have been mentored by Skip and he just knows everything about insurance. And he taught me everything that I could possibly want to know that he knew about insurance. He just, just constantly teaching, constantly teaching and mentoring. He also taught me most of what I know about account management because it's actually a, there's a fine art to managing accounts. We could spend here, do, do a half hour just talking about mentors and what they taught me, but a lot of mine came from my client base and really ended up 
developing really special relationships with because they they end up guiding you and advising you through whatever phase of the business you're in. And I think peer groups are really important, which is why I joined EO and, and now YPO. I love that. Is this where you typically go to to stay on top of new trends, new ideas, new things to test out? Well, certainly, yes. When you're coming up with a new product idea, if you have industry mentors that are friends of yours in the industry you're selling in, you'd be foolish to not call them and say, hey, I'm thinking about building this. What do you think? And 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 certainly my my like for the latest evolution of our company, because for a long time we had two industries we worked in, construction and insurance. And I I developed some really great friendships with people who mentored me and taught me a lot about construction and bidding and estimating. We sold that company almost five years ago. So for the last five years, we've pivoted the entire organization. I've got 280 employees right now, and all 280 are focused on insurance. So I I had to really, you know, expand my network and insurance and really build out those connections and relationships and then work with them to get to understand the problems that exist in the business. And then when I have an idea about a product, I call them and say, hey, what do you think about this? Is this really a big issue? Was this a big issue for you? And then, you know, we've we've actually been hiring advisors. It turns out retired insurance professionals are an incredible, incredible source of knowledge. And so we, we've we got two right now that were very successful executives in, in insurance and and they work for us on a contract basis because they don't want to work full-time. They're, they're, they are officially retired. They, they work from home and we tap into that as well just to get to take advantage of the 30 to 35 years of industry knowledge they have and asking them, hey, is this really a problem? Because the, the worst thing you can do in the software business is build the wrong code. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 it. That's it. So, yeah. Like that's way worse than building buggy code because buggy code can be fixed. The wrong code has to be thrown away, you know. So it's I've been 22 years building software in this company, and I've been writing code since I was like 11. So I've built a lot of the wrong code, and so that's something that we really tap into our mentors, advisors, our networks. Is hey, should we even be building this? Is this really a big problem? Is this market underserved? Those are really important questions that have to be asked to people that that you can trust who aren't just going to tell you what you want to hear because most people when you ask those kind of questions they know they know the the answer you want and they'll say oh yeah we totally buy that <laughs> and they're really just trying to make you feel good so true that happens I didn't get to chapter 9 but I skimmed it because the title I was really attracted to it and it's innovation doesn't happen in spare time no. I want to talk about no. that because that that struck a chord with me. And I was like, okay, that that's actually interesting. Sometimes people would say like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Follow your passion, do what you love. The innovation happens on your spare time. But you're saying no. And I agree with you on this, but I want to know your take on this. What do you mean? Yeah. So this is something that really hit home for me as I became a more well-rounded speaker and, and ended up spe- I ended up keynoting over 400 conferences. I, I used speaking as a way to meet people, establish myself as a subject matter expert, give back to the industry, educate. I just, I love teaching in general. I spent five years as an adjunct professor at, at Texas A&M. And I just really, I like teaching. I like speaking. I enjoy it. Uh, but I got to go to a lot of company conferences, private conferences that no one gets to go to other than employees and the speakers. And I got to sit in a lot of rooms with a lot of CEOs who are, you know, CEOs of two, three, five hundred billion dollar, million dollar companies, billion dollar companies who would hire me to come in and speak. And I got to listen to their talks to their employees. And, and I noticed something that that so many of them would talk about being innovative and would talk about disrupting themselves. They would talk, they would say the right things, 
but then they would ask their people to to do it in their spare time. And their people would come up to me afterwards like, you know, we don't have spare time. If they were in construction, we work in construction. We work six days a week already. Like we're already working 50 to 60 hours a week. We don't have any spare time. This There is no, you know, because people will read about Google's, I think, I think it was called 20% time where they gave them like a day a week where they could invent new things. And, but when you dive into non-tech industries, and I mean, the the concept of giving someone an entire day off just to work on special projects is completely foreign. It doesn't happen. True. And I'm a believer just in general in business. Like if we just step out of technology, we can talk about innovation and business that if you're serious about something in business, you hire dedicated people in dedicated seats with a dedicated budget and a dedicated space. And that's what I talk about in the chapter. And I actually reference a bunch of innovation leaders. And I we did some case studies and I interviewed some folks out there that are innovation leaders inside of large companies. And, and you just don't see a lot of traction at companies where they ask people to, to solve problems in their spare time or spend 10 minutes a day working on this because it doesn't happen. Their email inbox has 500 emails in it. Their calendar has seven meetings. You know, they're jammed doing their main job. And so the interesting thing about innovating, and we've we've innovated some really cool things at this company. We've built really neat systems, both for our clients and ourselves and products that we've owned and products our clients have owned. Mm-hmm. Some of my most innovative time is when I'm the most bored. And my business partner, Sebastian, you know, so I, I started this with with my dad and, and with my high school buddy, Sebastian. You know, Sebastian's active. He's my right-hand man. He, he Everybody in the company reports to him, and then he reports to me. I only have one direct report. That's him. Sebastian's obsessed with making sure I have bored, boredom time. <laughs> in fact, he tells me on a regular basis, like, where's your slack time? Like, what? You need to be bored because when you get bored, you get creative. Maybe that's just the way I work. I don't think it is. I think people need some space to think and be creative. And the most intentionally innovative companies I've worked with, and I've worked with some of the largest construction and insurance companies on the planet. Right. So you name the top 10 in both categories, and I've got clients in there. And when I look at the most innovative companies, they have dedicated people and dedicated seats with dedicated budgets and dedicated spaces. And they innovate. And by innovate, they they literally are internal consultants of reviewing how that company does things and reviewing external solutions and reviewing solutions they could build and then trying to play matchmaker, right? And match market solutions with internal company problems. And sometimes they have to build the solution because it doesn't exist, but they have dedicated mind space and physical space and time. But this applies to almost anything in business. Like if you ask employees to be safe on the job site, Let's say you have a you're you're in an industry where it's not safe to go to work, right? Like you could die doing your job. And there's quite a few of those. Garbage collections one. I've worked for garbage collection companies. Uh, construction's obviously one. Industrial energy is one. I mean, there's a lot of companies, a lot of industries where if you're not safe, you might die. If you just ask people to be safe, or if you hire dedicated safety managers who are focused and obsessed with safety, those are two completely different outcomes. Now, you still need everybody to think safety, but you still have to have dedicated safety managers because you ha- you need somebody obsessing over that problem. And so that's really what I'm talking about here is that there's a lot of companies that ask employees to do a lot of things in their spare time and to wear a lot of hats and that mm. it stresses them out. And you know something I've said a, a long time, if you sit in two seats at your company, it's a pain in the butt, right? I mean, because which one do you serve? Like in general, people will pick one thing to do because they need to be that focused. And so that's that's why I think this is an important lesson, but it's not just about dedicating people. They also have to have money, like literal capital resources they can expend. And they also have to have space. I know we're in a virtual world, but having some physical innovation space can really, really help. 
No, that makes a lot of sense, man. In in what you're saying, going back to the boredom piece, do you find that where, where Sebastian is telling you, hey, man, you've got to have some some time for yourself here, uh, boredom, let's block it out. Do you find that stepping out of the bureaucracy gets you more creative? 100%. Yeah. Yeah, if I'm bogged down in product deliveries, I mean, look, we've got 280 people, 230 of those are engineers. We have delivery schedules every day. We deliver a lot of code, whether it's, you know, we, again, we have we have three, you know, divisions in the company. We have, you know, three groups. One does professional services and insurance. One does certificate of insurance tracking and insurance. And the other one does claims and policy administration, technology and insurance. So it's all insurance. We've got these three groups. If I if I get down in the weeds of delivery schedules and what's on time, what's late, what's buggy, what's not, it doesn't go well because it completely sidetracks, you know, uh, it, it, it completely sidetracks my brain, you know, so I, I've got to trust my people and let them handle it. And if I find things, I've got to report it to them and step away and let go of it because otherwise it doesn't allow me to keep thinking, okay, what do we got to do next? Like, what's the next big module we got to build and why? Mm. What are customers saying? Like, and then, you know, I still do regularly sales demos because like, to innovate, you have to study your problem. To study your problem, you have to talk to customers. I am astounded at the number of executives who don't want to talk to customers. They want to have people who talk to customers and they want to have people who sell and they don't want to actually sell themselves and they don't want to actually go and do the speaking engagements. They don't want to actually travel and go do the sales work. They, they, they want to be an administrator. And that's a very bureaucratic way to run a business. Yeah. I, I am not a fan of that. And in the book, I talk about this. The CEO should be the chief evangelizing officer, which means you're, you need to be out giving speeches. Doesn't mean you give all the speeches. It just means you need to be giving speeches. You need to be talking to prospects. You need to be talking to vendors. You need to be out around where your competitors are. You need to be giving demos to prospects. How the hell else are you going to find out where people's problems are if you're not talking to people who aren't your clients yet? I mean, today I gave a demo this morning. I had a great conversation with a pretty major company. And it, it was it was fantastic. It was 30 minutes. I learned where their pain points are. I learned what software they're using and how it's working for them and why it's not functioning and why they need my software. I got to show them our software. Gave me time to spend some, but we just had a software release last night on this particular product I gave a demo on. It was a smart compliance demo. So I, we, I read the release notes last night on smart compliance. I was aware of the new features. It allowed me to demo the new features and talk about it, see if I liked it or not. And, and that's a totally different context. I mean, if you if you want to innovate, you've got to be using the existing tools and you got to be talking to people who aren't using them yet, who are telling you where their pain points are. Because that's that's it. I, I tell my people, it's like, it, call it being an archaeologist of pain. You know, you got to dig until you find pain because the pain's where the opportunity is. Because if you're not solving painful things, people aren't going to buy your stuff. They're going to look at it and say, that's nice. And then they're never going to buy from you. And, but we, what you want them to do is you want your proposition to be so compelling that they have to buy it when they see it. They say, I have to have this. How can I buy this? That's the ideal. That's the that's the sweet spot in business. And uh, I just don't see how an innovator and a leader can get there without doing a little bit of the work themselves. That means you're the only salesperson. doesn't mean you're only speaker, but it does mean you need to be involved in those things. And you can't be involved in those things if you're down in the weeds on delivery schedules. That's why you got to have an integrator and like a right-hand person who's running the ops so you can be the visionary. EOS is the business model we use. And EOS talks about this visionary integrator relationship and how important it is. It is so incredibly important. It's very true. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk calls it that uh, you got to be in the cloud and you got to be in the dirt, right? And you're doing both right now. I mean, look what you're doing with me too. It's it's part of the evangelizing as well, right? So yeah, yeah you got to do, you know, do the podcast interviews, go do speeches, write a book. <laughs> I mean, 
all those things are part of evangelizing, but then you got to do, you, you can't just do that. You also have to jump in and look at your product and check your services out and talk to your customers and go do, we do quarterly stewardship meetings with all of our large service clients. And I, I go do them. I, I'm there. I attend physically like at their office. And those are really important times because I take them to lunch and then we talk about like what's actually bothering them. That's when they tell me all the information. I like that, man. I, I think you're still running what it seems like to me with the same mindset that a startup runs with that same excitement, the same agility. And as companies grow, what we've seen is they lose that part. And so how do you maintain that? Like, is it, does it come from the top? Does it come from you and Sebastian or where, where does that come from? Yeah, it has to, because we have no board and we have no investors and I have no banks. Like I have no loans. We have no debt. We have, we have like, no one tells us what to do other than our customers. So it's a unique situation. You have to be super self-motivated. And at some point you reach a level of success that the need, the necessity you know, to be able to put food on the table might not be as, as like burning as in the first seven years when I ate ramen and tomato soup and just wanted to have a good meal. So you have to find new motivation. It's important as well to recognize when a business is played out and it's time to sell it. And that, that definitely, we reached what I call optimum value point with SmartBid and, and we sold it five years ago. And that provided capital. It provided a return on a huge investment we had made internally with our own capital. And it also freed us up to think about what was a bigger problem we wanted to solve than just this. And look, <laughs> the bets that we're taking might not work out. And and there's some excitement in that too, because there's the fear of the unknown. And like, we're making huge investments. We sold this really well-developed product with, you know, literally a quarter million companies using it. It was great. But we, we you know, we had to find something new to work on from a product perspective. Well, actually, we didn't have to. We could have gone to just being a professional service company selling time. But that's that wasn't what we wanted. We said, we, we want to focus all in on insurance. We want to create a new product suite which was Terra. And the exciting thing is after three and a half years of development, we're going live with all of our first customers right now. We got a bunch of early stage clients that committed early on and we're going live with them right now, like right now, like, like three weeks ago, ago live. We got another one in two weeks, got another one in four weeks. I am so fired up about it because they're jumping in, using the product. They're finding where the issues are and help, you know, we're working through those and solving them. It's like starting over all again, but this time with the benefit of all the lessons you learned the previous time. So it, you know, that keeps me motivated and it keeps me really interested in what we're doing. And, and of course, our, our team keeps me super motivated. We've got amazing people. We have pretty darn low turnover. And so we've got a really great team of consistent people that like working here and, and are helping us build some really great stuff. And we're having fun building it. But it doesn't mean there's not pain. I mean, it was painful to let go of a product and sell it. It was painful to, I handed off my old construction podcast and we handed off my old construction report and I stopped doing a construction tech roadshow and we stopped doing construction tech consulting. You know, so we had to let go of some things. And that was really super painful because I really enjoyed them. So there's there's a lot of things that kind of culminated to this point. But I mean, I, I was like fired up driving in today because I knew I was going to get to do an interview with you. I've got another interview this afternoon on my own podcast. I had a sales demo and I have some prospect calls. I've got like two hours of prospecting I'm doing today and I am like fired up about it. Where do you typically put your, or where does Sebastian put your boredom time? Where's that? Where's that, <laughs> where's that thinking time, dude? You know, we block some days out and that's the thing. Like he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't manage my calendar for me, but he just gives me a lot of friendly reminders that he wants me to be bored here in the office. And he also wants me to be bored and have free time when I travel. I, it was interesting. I was in I was in uh, Florida a few weeks ago, 
And I had like a whole like half day with nothing booked because I, you know, I had, you know, I had client meetings and there were more client meetings, prospect meetings. And, but I had like a whole half day and I, I literally just went to downtown Fort Lauderdale and I realized that I knew like three people around there and I started calling them and then I just went and visited them. And then we ended up coming up with ideas for new, new things they wanted to talk about and setting sales demos. And he, and he, I get back and he goes, I need you to just travel to random cities and be bored. Cause you're going to figure out what to do there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the truth, man. I mean, you, you give you give yourself a little bit of space. If you if you book every minute of every day, it's it's man, it's it's brutal. It's exhausting. It's a it's a super downer to have eight meetings a day. I mean, you burn out like instantly burn out. <laughs> instant. <laughs> That's good. Instant combustion. Yeah. All right. Values first, second, and third. Where do we start with that? I mean. Jim Collins said, uh, you know, good to great, great by choice. He said the difference between good companies and sustainably great ones, and I'm I'm paraphrasing him, is that sustainably great ones have values and they stick to them, even if the values are totally different. You know, Walmart has totally different values than Amazon, which has totally different values than Target, which has totally different values than, you know, whoever else, Best Buy. I mean, these, these you know, we, we can just pick different retailers, but... All those companies have different values. You know, one is a super low cost bargain shop. One is a you know medium tier. Saks Fifth is a high end, you know, retail. I mean, you, you look at a lot of the companies he studied that were sustainably great over a twenty year period, and the common element was that they had values. They knew them. They stuck to them. And most organizations I go to have a a website with a web page that's called Values. And they have, you know, three, four, five, or six words on there that are, that sound good. But the, the real question is, do they actually use them in hiring, retention, and firing of people? And do they use them in acquiring or disposing of customers? You know, and, and it's not fun to dispose of customers, but sometimes it's not a good value fit and you, it's not going to be a pretty relationship. And so you've got to really know what they are. With us, the, the phrase I use internally is, if you can't repeat it, you don't believe it. If one of my 280 folks can't tell me what our values are, then we have a really huge problem. Because we talk about them a lot. Every single quarterly state of the company address, I go over the values and talk about them, provide stories, and we we honor somebody in the company who exemplifies those values in a very specific way. They get the values of the quarter award from us. And you know, we we have an acronym, DBSD, D-B-S-T-H-E, do the right thing even when no one's looking, be self-motivated and resourceful, show respect to everyone, be a Jibby ambassador 24-7. You know, think lean, have each other's backs, enjoy the ride and geek out. Those are our six values. They're not just words or sentences. They mean something. We have to use them. And we hire people. We talk about all six. And if they don't match, then they don't get hired. We do quarterly evaluations with our employees. And if we talk about those six values, and if they get negatives on values multiple quarters in a row, they're probably not going to stay around. And so that that's why it, it really matters because what the heck else bonds a group of people together voluntarily other than values? And like, how do you even define what culture is? You talk, we talk a lot about culture in a company, but culture is defined by values and shared adherence to those values. It doesn't mean that you don't screw up. And, and I am a type A, ENTJ, extrovert, wh- however you want to define that. And we tend to mess up, right? Because we, we talk ourselves into trouble. We, we get excited by people. So we tend to be social. We, you, know, you tend to make mistakes because you run, you run fast, talk a lot. And you you can step in it. So it doesn't mean that values first, values second, values third. That doesn't mean you don't mess up. It just means that 90% of the time or better, you're really adhering to those values. And the other 10% of the time, you're trying really hard. And that's why we talk about it with our people. Like we, we give room for grace. You have some room for mess up here. 
you know, but you, you need to avoid the really big integrity violations, right? Because those will kill you. They'll kill a business and they'll kill you professionally. But you also, you, you've got to work really hard to try. And when you mess up, you got to be really good at apologizing <laughs> and you got to make it right. So that, that's what we're talking about is, and, uh, you know, Jim Collins wrote two whole books on this that are really great to read and and, and talk about. But I, I just see too many single word BS bureaucratic value statements that no one even remembers. If they can't repeat the words that are their values, they, they don't believe them. At Texas A&M, our values uh, are into an acronym as well. RELIS, respect, excellence, leadership, loyalty, integrity, selfless service. I was a student 22 years ago, and I still remember those because it really matters. And we have a code of honor. Aggies don't lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those who do. And, you know, so that's a big part of our culture as a university. Yeah. And the same thing with our company. I, I, I want our six values to matter. I want them people to talk about them. I want us to be, you know, I want us to, to work on those every single day. And if we're not good at them, I want us to get better. And when we mess up, I want us to say sorry and be specific about why we're saying sorry. Uh, look, I would like, my, I, would, I would like for us to all enjoy working with each other. Mm. I mean, I, I intend to work with my group of leaders. I'm 43. I intend to work with them until my late 60s, maybe later. I mean, I've, I mean, I've got at least 25 years left in me if not longer, maybe 35, I don't know. But you know, when you, when you think multi-decade and you're like, yeah, I want to work with this group of people for the next few decades, yeah, you better be aligned on values or you're going to be really unhappy. So a few good points here. I want to go back to one and then hit the latter one, which is the longevity of thinking something on mentally. But enjoy the ride and geek out. Tell me how you execute on that because I've seen some companies that say, yeah, yeah, this is this is one of our values. It's fun to work here. And it's not, it's not fun to work there. Yeah. Work is still going to be work. The ride is the whole ride, your whole life. And something I talk about with my folks is just having passions both inside the job and outside the job and uh, separating work and your personal life enough so you can pursue hobbies that, that you're passionate about. I'm a compulsive hobbyist. I am obsessed with flying. So I, I have seven ratings and almost 1500 hours. And I, I really have been really focused on learning a, a, that skill that that's a skill that takes about a decade to really try to begin to master. I play piano and I play guitar and I sing at farmer's markets in the summertime. And I, you know, I like to dance. I mean, there's a lot of things I like to pursue my, my employees the same way. I have one of my leaders, she loves making chocolate. Like she just, that's one of her just passion. She geeks out on it. I've got another one who loves going, you know, motorbiking up in the mountains. Uh, I have another one who, if I, if I think about all their hobbies, like two of them are obsessed with baseball and go to these really cool baseball camps every year. I've got, and I, I can think about what their passions and hobbies are. And that's really cool. Like work should enable those things. And all too often work gets in the way of our pursuit of our passions. And that's something that we have to be really cautious about. I also think we should geek out on our work. It doesn't mean it's not going to be a trudge sometimes because it's still work. But like, I get excited to do demos. I like touching the product that we have. I like going in and doing product reviews. I geek out. My Sebastian geeks out on redesigning user experiences in our products. He loves it and he's good at it. He still cracks code open. I don't. You know, I did. I did a lot of the coding the first couple of years of the business. Sebastian will still crack a Visual Studio open and write some code. Check it in because he geeks out on it. It's fun. He pulls his laptop out on a Saturday and still writes code because it's fun. He enjoys it. 
we we do a an exercise and e, from, from EOS called the delegate and elevate exercise. There's four quadrants. You just take a piece of paper, draw you know draw two lines on it, make four quadrants. Top left is things you love doing and are great at. Top right is things you like doing and are good at. The bottom left quadrant is things that you don't like doing but you're good at them. And the bottom right quadrant is things that you hate doing and you're bad at. And what I tell my folks is I, I want you completely out of the bottom right, right quadrant. If you hate it and you're not good at it, I don't want you to do it at all. Like get get out of that, meaning, you know, find someone else that you can trade that task with and they can do it. Because we typically do this exercise as a team. The bottom left quadrant, things that you don't like doing, but you're good at. I said, you're probably gonna have to spend 10 to 20% of your time there. For me, it's legal and contract review. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. It's like chloroform to me, but I have to do it. It's a part of my job. And I accept it. And it actually makes me hate it less once you accept it. So, you know, I spend 10% of my time doing that. The rest of the time, I want my staff spending 80 to 90% of the time above the line. Things they either like doing or love doing, they're good at or they're great at. Because I think that we can geek out more if, if we do that. And the interesting thing is, in a company or a team of any size, if you all write down those four quadrants, you can often find somebody who actually uh, derives joy out of the things that you don't. And you can trade tasks with them. That's so true. And you can actually both end up being happier and more productive if you just write it down, show each other, and then swap tasks. And so that's a big part of geeking out as well, is just trying to figure out how to get out of the bottom white quadrant. Like, And again, that's a, that Delegate Elevate Charts and EOS tool. I love it. But man, what a useful way of, of looking at things. And, and it allows us to, to geek out more. It also allows for higher retention. Oh yeah. Like yeah. there's there's no reason for somebody to to leave if they're focusing on the things they love doing most of the time. Yeah, you still um you know, you still have the the potential distraction or the the potential issue of of financial constraints and money, you know, people do make job decisions based on money and that's that's totally understandable. It's part of human nature. Uh, but but there is a huge, huge number of people that make decisions based on how they feel about their job and uh, how it makes them feel. And so I think it's, it's important Look, we don't, I, I'm not trying to pretend like we have this completely nailed down. Uh, I'm telling you what we aspire to. And for the last really seven years, what we've been really dialed into is this, this method and this way of looking at things. And, um, you know, it has resulted in, you know, for us, single digit turnover numbers in an, in an industry that, that has some pretty high turnover. You know, we we actually have lower than average turnover at our company. And I think this this is probably part of it. Yeah, that makes sense, man. Yeah, you do have a high turnover rate typically when you're working with engineers, coders, because yeah. they go out and do their own thing after. Yeah. They're like, oh, you know, we can do a better job. We can better environment. But that's awesome that you that you have that. What about you? How do you keep yourself going? Because we talked a little tiny little bit about if you do the wrong things, you burn out, right? You burn out instantly. How do you make sure that you're spending quality time flying, more time learning how to sing better, dance better? What what does that look like in your life? Because it, I think it's just as important as the other part of this. I, I think probably started in high school when I just developed a really bad incurable case of FOMO fear of missing out. And I, <laughs> that's funny. I haven't recovered from it ever. So I'm always flirting at the point of total burnout. I mean, just, I run it right up to the edge generally all the time. And you have to have family that's going to help pull you back. Yep. You know, my wife, my two daughters, they definitely pull me back uh, from the ledge. 
it's a it's a challenging for those of us who really have a huge fear of missing out on something yeah. and want to continue to strive to to learn new things and do new things and experience new things. Like the best gift for me is not a physical gift. It's an experience. You know, if you want to give me a great gift, whatever that is, a great meal, a, a great outdoor adventure, whatever that is, that's, that's the best gift for me. Uh, and so I think that you've got to at least have some either internal mechanism, like Sebastian has an incredible amount of self-discipline around this. So he has a really strong internal clock on when he's approaching burnout, whereas I don't. And so I have, you know, him and my family and I've, I've got some other friends that help keep me back from the edge of, of burnout. Cause burnout, burnout is one of those dangerous things is once you really hit burnout, it's really hard to come back because you have to recover. Yeah. And so I, I think it's also important to have, you know, for, for men to have some other men in their life that are willing to call them out, uh, keep them balanced. I do. I'm in this really cool group called F3 that uh, works out together three to five times a week. Local to you. No, it's, it's, a, there's, there's 3,600 locations around the world. Whoa. Half a million men work out together every day in F3 by my numbers. It's what, roughly what I can estimate. I, I don't know if it's every day, maybe every week. I mean, it's, it's, it's hundreds of thousands of, of men are in this and no one pays anybody any money. It's really cool. We just get together, work out, talk about what's going on at the end of the workout and uh, hang out and have coffee. It's, it's, it is, it's remarkable. No money. No, it's not a business. It's everywhere. So like anywhere I travel, like when I travel, like I was in Houston yesterday, I went to F3 Houston. There's like six locations. They're all in city parks. It's always at 530 in the morning, unless it's on like a weekend when it's at 630. And uh, I went and did a really hard workout with a bunch of guys, met some new friends. You know, it, it, it that kind of stuff really helps center my brain and, and pulls me back from the ledge because you're not by yourself, especially when you're traveling. You can really... You can really approach burnout point when you're when you're alone by yourself, traveling, working hard, and you don't have like a non-work thing to do. So that's been a, a pretty neat addition to my life. Have you tested out pickleball? Pickleball's uh so to be fair, no, I have never played pickleball. I like to play paddle, which is uh, a hybrid of tennis and racquetball. Yes. Um I love paddle, super fun. The challenge is finding paddle courts. Uh, pickleball is like universally available everywhere. And everybody I know who plays pickleball loves it. Mm. I suck at games with aim. Like I'm really bad at anything involving aim. I'm really good at anything involving balance. <laughs> so, or, or just wrote endurance. That's why F3 works. Like this morning, my F3 workout was a was called a, a ruck workout. So we put on 30 yeah. pound rucks backpacks we did the whole workout with weights cinder blocks and rocks and like it 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 sucked it was it was 43 degrees and super windy and but it, but it really got my my brain ready for the day you know like when and and so i think that's why for me that works a little better yeah. pickleball <laughs> pickleball i think with as bad as my aim is i'm not sure it would end up being good because tennis and paddle end up being a maybe an unhealthy obsession because i wasn't very good at them I think you'd be more frustrated than when you started. Exactly. Like, exactly. It's like golf. I play golf once a month. You know, Sebastian plays like every week. I play once a month and uh, it's enough to have fun with my friends and have a good time. I shoot 100 to 105 and I play little enough that I don't care that the score is low or high. The score is high. And <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's great, man. I love that. All right. So where would we go in? follow you and find out more about you first of all the book 
so far as I haven't finished it is really great. Um, Thanks. I got to know you and the structure. I'm excited to finish it up. So everyone pick up the book, Be Your Own VC on Amazon. It's already on there. But if we want to follow you, where do we go? Where do you, where are you typically active on social? I mean, best place is LinkedIn. I'm super busy on LinkedIn. I, I, I love that. I love LinkedIn as a platform. It's, uh, absolutely my favorite number one. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually pulling back on a lot of other social channels because it, it just doesn't provide near the quality of interactions and people that I know. And LinkedIn has been amazing. So if you want to hit me up, hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, that's where I post a lot of content from the book. A lot of videos get posted on there. Uh, I have a website, jamesbenham.com. That's J-A-M-E-S-B-E-N-H-A-M, jamesbenham.com. The company, my mothership company is called JB Knowledge. And you can find out more information there at JB Knowledge. So JB Knowledge, jamesbenham.com, or just go to Amazon, look for the book, or hit me up on LinkedIn under James Benham. It's, uh, easy. it's easy to get a hold of me. All right, man. I'm going to hit you up on LinkedIn. Yes. Awesome. I'll be hitting you up and I'd probably reach out to you. I enjoyed this conversation a lot. I think we we didn't really get into even more, which I think could be helpful for a lot of the entrepreneurs and solopreneurs. So I'd love to have you back later on this year, man. Yeah, bring, bring me back. I'll, I'll do it in a heartbeat. We can talk about anything you want, but I appreciate you having me on. And to everybody out there, just uh, you know, keep, keep trucking, keep working hard and uh, we work hard to maintain control and generate cash. That's what, that's what being your own VC and bootstrapping is all about is, being able to control your own destiny and, uh, you know, build a, build a team that you like working with and, and, uh, be able to answer to yourself. It's really an amazing ride. It is, man. Agreed. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.